0: Thank you, praise team. Well, we're in week 11 of uh, Into the Flannel Graph. And uh, probably one of the longer series I've ever preached is is into the flannel graph, and we've been dealing with this idea of who we are determines what we do. Our identity will determine our actions. How we see ourselves, uh, what we think is important, the, these things that form our our personhood, our identity, will create the actions of our life. And and then we've been tracing through God's story because we believe that God's story helps us find our identity as the people of God. And and so it's important that we see. God's story, God's vision of who we can be, God's who God is. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought, if, if I would have picked the songs for this week, I probably wouldn't have picked How He Loves. Uh, but, but as I stood there and listened to that song, and thought about the love of God, and thought about my identity, and thought about His purpose for me, I think that sums it up. Uh, you know, that, that, that song is... Um, David Crowder made that song popular, but that's a John Mark McMillan song. And actually, I saw Glorious Unseen sing it, who are the house band for the House of Prayer, probably the year after it was released. They were turned with, with Crowder and with John Mark McMillan, and, and they sang the song. And I remember I was in a sanctuary, and they had candles everywhere. And, and the words of that song just washed over the congregation of the love of God. And how he perceives us. And I, and I think to understand that song, and this isn't in my notes, but to understand that song, I, there's pushback on that song, To believe it or not. There, there's a lot of people, oh, you know, that, that somehow this, that this is overestimating the love of God. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, I don't understand the pushback. I don't. Because the Bible talks about this unbelievable love of God over and over. And, and, and the story of the song, of where it came from, I'd encourage you to get on YouTube and, and watch John Mark McMillan as he conveys. Did we turn the lights really bright up here? Can, can we turn them down just a little bit? I, I, I feel like they don't want to see me that much. That's fine. But yeah, John Mark McMillan had lost his best friend in a car wreck. And he had felt distant from God. That he felt God didn't care. And so that words from that song springs from a revelation of how much God really loved him. And so when you understand the context of the song... It helps us understand the significance of the song because the truth is that many of you have walked in this room and you feel like God doesn't care and you feel like you don't matter and you feel like you're just a victim of your circumstances. And I want you to know today that God desperately loves you. As a matter of fact, the the Bible says, man, I got to be careful. I'm going to end up preaching for an hour. The Bible says, that our names are written on God's hand. Folks, that is completely backwards. God's name should be written on my hand because a slave would put his master's name on his hand, but God writes our names on his hand because he desperately loves you. And it's really fitting. As we talk about the story of God it's the story of God's love for his creation and as we've traced through this story we have been created wonderfully created by the love of our heavenly father that, that creation is not some accident but God has lovingly created this, this universe of which we're a part, and even now He is creating us in love. But we bring catastrophe. We fell. And it's easy to look back at Adam and Eve and say, man, they really messed up in the garden, and because they messed up, look at the mess I'm in. The truth is that there's some mess because of their mess up. And this, these are deep theological words that I'm using. <laughs> but there's mess in your life because of the messes that you've made, too. And yet God, over and over, he comes to his people with, with an opportunity to be delivered from our detours, from our exile, from our wilderness, and he sends Jesus I'm just kind of tracing through the story just really briefly and Jesus, this perfect God man, he lives this life and he shows us what it means to be human I understand at NYC they talked about the concept that 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 Jesus shows us what it means to be really human. And when we live this lesser life, when we live in sin, we're, we're really not living as humanity is intended to be. I think that's a tremendous thought. That when we sin, we become less than human. And Jesus shows us what it means to be human. And then in his humanity, in his godness, in his perfection, he is crucified because of your sin and my sin. I push back and, and, and you know, I, I, I struggle every once in a while with theological constraints, constraints to, you know, maybe, maybe nobody else does, but, you know, we'll sing about the wrath of God and, 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 and I understand that as a theological, uh, theological thing and thought, but, but when I see Jesus crucified, I see the wrath of man <laughs> unveiled. And I see Jesus crucified because we hate the Father more than the Father hates us. And Jesus is crucified. And his death becomes my death. And his life becomes my life when I accept him. And then last week we talked about the Holy Spirit and the church. And today we're going to talk about consummation. The end. (laughs) The end of the sermon series, the end of the story. You know, there's a lot of issues, a lot of questions around the end. And I know you guys are thinking, where are the charts? Uh, you know, I needed this like charts all the way through to explain everything. I wish I could do that. Uh, I see those charts and every time I see those charts, they convince me and I say, that's right. And then the next person comes along with different charts and I say, hey, they may have been right. And so it leads me to believe that, that maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus is right when he says, no one but the Father knows when the end will come. I was at a church one time and we were letting the kids play Stump the Pastor, and this was the last time we played that game. (laughs) Because one of the kids said, Pastor, who is the beast? (laughs) Uh, I got to tell you, I don't know. (laughs) And then some like, you know, if you want to write a popular book in Christian literature, write an end times book because it will sell. And those are interesting things. I mean, I, I read, I've read those things. They're interesting. I, you know, I'm not, if that's your thing, that, that's, that's okay, as long as you keep about the task. My, my problem sometimes with those who focus so much as on the end on the end is that oftentimes they develop this arc mentality where they come into the ark and they're no longer serving. And i got to tell you, I, I want Jesus to find me serving and going and doing when He comes. So there's millennialist, and there's premillennialist, and there's dispensational millennialist. I, I tend to be a pan-millennialist. Everything will pan out in the end. <laughs> but this morning, we're going to talk about the end. Where, where is this story headed? And by the way, we're Nazarene. Say that with me. You probably never said that. Say, I am a Nazarene. Go ahead. Say it. One two one two three. I am a Nazarene. Yeah. And, and the story of the name is, is an awesome um, story of, 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 you know, the name that we pick is those who are marginalized. That's who we want to associate with. Uh, I love that name. Uh, but, but we're part of the Wesleyan tradition, and so we we believe in, Wesley would say, as to essentials unity, as to non-essentials charity. Am I saying that right? In other words, there's things that, you know, how these things Completely in, we we don't need to have the same opinion, and so we have what we call the broad tent, where there's a lot of things. See, I, that was a right question there. I, I was right. When I get something right, there's a bell, and you you, you, you don't hear it very often. But hey, um, I've lost my community. the big tent of, of Wesleyanism and the big tent of Wesleyanism. You know what we say? You know what the Nazarene doctrine is on the on the end? Of, Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge the living and the dead. We don't take any position on any of those. So so you have Nazarene pastors that preach all over the universe on this, right, Bob? And so we we believe that Jesus is going to return. That, That there's a point to this story. It's not just here. Uh, Anybody ever watch a a bad movie that at the end of it, it's like, what was the point of that? Uh, When when I was in college, I I went to see the movie Dune. Anybody ever see Dune? And we missed the first 10 minutes of the movie. And I guess the first 10 minutes of the movie, of the three-hour movie, was important to understand the rest. And we came to the end of the movie, and we're going, what? What? You know, I like that about at least that about Hallmark Movie Channel movies. Um, you know, they're all about Christmas, which you can't go wrong there. And they always have a point. <laughs> you know, the point is the girl or the guy gets the gal or the girl. I mean, it's always that. When my father-in-law says, "When they're kissing, you know the movie's over." <laughs> so it may be the same point, but it's a point. There is a meaning and significance in the conclusion of God's story. Now, it matters how we see the end. It matters how we see the beginning. It matters how we see the beginning. It matters how we see the end. If if we believe we come from nothing and we go to nothing, then life becomes meaningless. All that matters is what I do here. But if we're created in the image of a loving God... And the plot is this loving God bringing us back to him and finally fully to him. Life has meaning, even in the hard times. And I look around this room and what I realize, I see you, Karen. (laughs) It's been kind of a rough year, hasn't it? And you're not the only one. I look around this room. I see Jane and Carol. I see Rodney. I see all the people that have went through hardship. I see you, Nancy. The people that have went through hardship in this room. Even though you've went through difficult times, life still has meaning because there's love at the beginning and there's love at the end and God is bringing us all to Him. Several years ago, we, we decided to, to climb some 14,000 peaks in Colorado. And uh, they, they're called to those that climb them, 14ers. That, that sounds a lot cooler, doesn't it? So we decided to do some 14ers, and the guy that I was climbing with decided, well, let's not just do one. Here's this series where we can do four 14ers. And uh, I was a model of being in shape, much like now. And I had my boots on and we did the climbing and, and, and eventually we got to the end of it and uh, I, I could see my, my boot actually tore out at the end of it and I'm standing, I'm sitting there on a rock and I could see the truck about a half mile away and I'm thinking, how in the world and am I going to make it that last half mile? Some of you may feel like that today, right? That, that your legs are burning? that you're tired, that, that, that all that you've been through. But the truth is, each painful step that I took took me closer to home, and every painful step that you take or take is taking you closer to home. I mean, this great story of God, and it's like any great journey, there's a, there's a great destination at the end. You know, the model of all stories, pretty much the model of all stories, modern stories, is Homer's Odyssey. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's almost like that, that's the blueprint for a great story. And, you know, the, 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 the story is bringing them home. Ulysses comes back to Ithaca and Penelope. And then that great modern Ulysses, the Dorothy, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, of course, that we, we all watched. I was thinking about that this week or last week and we didn't have black and white television until the mid-70s so I I didn't know the difference between Oz and Kansas it was all black and white but Dorothy was coming back home to Kansas and the story of God is a story towards home to where we belong and the truth is that that the story of Ulysses and the sirens are our stories that oftentimes there's sirens and our stories that that will draw us from the path that God has chosen, that God has in mind for us. But we're people on the way home. That's why Peter calls us aliens and sojourners. (laughs) In other words, there's a purpose and a mission here, but the purpose is not to put down roots and think that everything depends on here. But there's a place that we're headed now, now of course, there's alternative narratives to this story of life and, and the consummation. You know, our, our focus in the story of God is, is God and, and, and the God of love. You understand that? That, that, is, that as I've told this story, as we've talked about this story, this is a story of a God who loves his people and is drawing them to him and is willing to pay the price so that they could be with him. That, that's our story. That's your identity. And yet there's alternate stories, and, 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 and you could reject this God of love. You could reject him, and you could choose to be east of Eden. You could choose to live in slavery. You could choose to be in exile. At, at the time of Jesus, Jesus said, you, you could reject the kingdom of heaven. You could reject the Son. You you'd reject who I am, and you can choose hell. God doesn't send people to hell. You realize that? People choose hell. Now, now, the word that Jesus uses is this word Gehenna. And this is a trash heap outside of the community. And Jesus is saying, in part, you know, there's a place of judgment. I'm not disputing that, but Jesus is in part saying, you know, you can choose to live in the trash instead of God's kingdom. John uses images of destruction and chaos and death and in in revelation. Well, we could choose to accept this God who is love, who is wholeness, who is order and community we can embrace the opposite. Hate and brokenness, chaos, solitude, and death. Where are we headed? Should shape how we're living. So, so when we think about heaven and all that God has in store for his people, and we think about the kingdom of heaven, which I believe begins now in the life of the believer, but, but extends in full when we see Him face to face, when we see our destination, that should begin to shape how we live on this journey. See, see, we're not just living towards a God that's merely in the future, uh, but we're living towards a God who is in the present. <laughs> and, and there's several ways that in, in, in the biblical text that, that you can understand this story, you, you can think of the ideal of slavery, being in slavery to promised land. And, and in a lot of ways that, that we are in this wilderness journey and God is taking us to the promised land. Or you could think in terms of exile to promised land. You know, it's interesting. I think I'm supposed to speak. Emily's not in here. I need to confirm this. I think I'm supposed to speak at the next serve day. And I think the text I'm going to use, and I believe it's out of Jeremiah, J- Jeremiah says to people in exile, be a blessing where you're planted. i got to tell you, it's, it's one of my favorite texts, but because I believe oftentimes the church that we feel like we're in exile, you know, God's instruction to people in exile is bless where you're planted, because by being a blessing and blessing the city, you bless yourself. <laughs> and so here we are, we're in this place. You know, there's a heaven to come. There's a hell to shun. (laughs) There's something more in the future in store for us, the people of God. But but we can't just sit on our hands and wait. Who's a good waiter? I put my hand up. I'm a terrible waiter. And God doesn't want us to wait. But, But God calls us in this period between before eternity, to be a blessing right where we're playing it, to be a blessing in this town, to be a blessing in our neighborhoods. You you see this story unfolding in Revelation, and Revelation in a lot of ways is a weird book, right? 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 If, it, if you don't think that's a weird book, I want to know what else you're reading, okay? There's some imagery in there that's a little bit scary. Nobody else. Okay, just me. I'm in Ezekiel this week in my, in my readings. Ezekiel's a, a fun book too. And uh, Revelation's a story of exodus. Uh, there, there's plagues and there's oppression. And, and there's a city or a promised land. And there's community and belonging and peace and service and beauty at the order of the book. And God is taking his people from wilderness and exile to this place of promise, to the promised land. But this morning I'm going to use a different one. I'm going to use the image of a wedding. And this ideal of wedding, um, I think Amy's saying... In ever be, uh, I think the words are, the bride will be. Help me, Brian. You know the words. You know, okay. No, just 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 nod. Says something about a bride uh, being being pure, and uh, you know we are the bride. (laughs) You understand that the church is the bride of of Jesus Christ. That that that's the imagery. So so this ideal of a wedding is throughout. The scriptures. As a matter of fact, in, in Ephesians uh, 5, Paul is talking about a husband and wife's relationship, and he's going through all this stuff of submitting and loving, and, and then finally he goes, but of course you realize I'm talking about this mystery of Christ and his church. That Jesus is loving his church and his church is called to submit herself to him. That's what I'm talking about. But hey, brides and husbands, (laughs) this is how you should live too. And so built into the foundation of our civilization, built into our relationships is this image of God and his church. Of this God who loves his church and is willing to be dedicated to her. So you have this ideal throughout the Old Testament. Jesus talks about it in his parables. And, and we've heard how it happens. A, a, a bride would become engaged. And uh, any engaged people in here? Giovanni, raise your hand, yeah. You got now you're embarrassed, aren't you? Any other, any other okay. So you're engaged, you know. That that's that period before the wedding, you know, that that, that there's there's that commitment that's been made. Now now in their culture is a little bit different than our culture. A little bit more a little bit more significant to make that engagement commitment. Not that your engagement's not significant and committed, Giovanni. Sorry. But it was different. It was more significant. It was as if they were married, even though they weren't married. And, and, and so in, in their law, you'd have virgins who were widows that they never consummated the marriage, but it was as if they were married. So when, when Mary turns up pregnant, when she's engaged to Joseph, it's not just, oops, it's adultery. And that's how it had been seen. It's significant. So the, the, the groom would give a gift to the bride, and he'd say something like this, Behold, you are consecrated to me with this ring according to the law of Moses and Israel. And then the groom would leave. <laughs> now that's the way to get married, let me tell you. <laughs> you take care of the plans, call me when it's time. <laughs> that's a whole nother series. <laughs> so the groom leaves and he, and he goes and builds a home for his bride. And uh, typically not always, but typically, very commonly, it'd be an addition built on the father's house. And I always think about that. I don't think Terry would have wanted to move into the mills compound. Uh, so we didn't do that. And, and, and the bride is waiting, and she's expected to remain true to the groom. And then usually, sometime later, however long it take the, the groom to, to build this house or build this addition, lots of times in the night Jesus uses the example of coming in the night the bridegroom would return and there would be torches and there would be a wedding party there would be commotion in the town everybody would know (laughs) here comes the groom and the bride would drop all and put on her wedding dress and she would leave her house and meet groom and then they'd return in this procession to this new home and this is the, this is the uh, PG-13 version uh, or it's not a version but cover your ears if you're, if you're sensitive about this stuff then they would be intimate and they would consummate the marriage and around them there would be a celebration going on talk about awkward that's an awkward thing. About a seven-day celebration. And then the bride and groom would come out and join the celebration on their honeymoon. And that's the significance of, you know, th- this wasn't a three-hour reception where Jesus turned the water into wine. This was like a seven-day week-long thing, and they ran out of wine for the reception, and it was embarrassing. In this shame-based culture, this would be an embarrassment. And Jesus, in his first miracle, removes the embarrassment of a bride and groom and her family. Do do you see the beauty of that? Think about that. They were two unknown people. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to take your shame. And he turns the water into wine. So there's this celebration and then there's the marriage. Now, now this is the image that Jesus uses often. As, as a matter of fact, I, I, you know, I didn't count him up, but, but I think, Bob, probably almost more than any image in the Bible, this image of bride and husband, if it's not the most, it's one of the most over and over. Old Testament, New Testament, and this ideal of the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Matter of fact, it's it's the image that Jesus is using in John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is using wedding language, and, and, and I think the King James translation says, "In my father's house are many mansions," is, is the language. Uh, I, I, if you love the King James, I'm not bashing the King James, but that's the wrong image. Jesus is talking about the Father's house. And he's saying, "In my father's house are many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a place for my bride. Not on the Father's property, but in the Father's house. And over and over you see this. And the end of the story is not simply knowing God, being able to see God, but it's one with the Father. One with love. One with light. One with salvation. And so the question today is, where are we in the story? <laughs> we're waiting. Right? You know, we, 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 hopefully we're actively waiting. We're not waiting by just sitting back, but we're waiting and we're going. And so the question is, how are we waiting? I want to say something. If you believe this is true, say amen. Jesus is going to return. Okay, I, I, I firmly in my heart believe Jesus is going to return. Could it be soon? Yeah. I joined believers from the first century in saying it feels like his return is imminent. And simply because it's, it's been like that from the beginning does not mean that it couldn't be like the truth now. Right? You understand that? That, that Jesus could return now. And if he returned now, nothing in his word would be untrue. Jesus could return. And and, and and my heart of hearts and I feel the the return could be soon. But but let's face it, we've lived in a generation of he's coming next weeks, right? How many dates have come and gone? I I, I thought he was coming at Y2K, right? Because all the computers said they were going to shut down. <laughs> and we know when the computers are over. The end of this age is over. But, but let's, you know, I, I can think of date after date in, in my time as a, a Christian that people said, this is it. And they had convincing arguments. And what happens when, that, when you go through those things is you can almost become jaded to the thought. Where I think God wants us to live with this anticipation that it could be tonight. It could be today. And not with fear, and not with dread, but with this understanding that the God of love is going to come at some point and maybe soon, and He's going to bring me to Himself and it will be all wholeness. But whether Jesus comes in the next 50 years, or 100 years, He's going to come to us at the end of our life. That a lot of these people that lived in, who lived in fear or anticipation of a day, of a, of a second coming of Jesus, have went to see Him in death. And so I know at some point in my life, and the older I get, the closer it gets, amen people, right? Yeah, you starting to understand that? The older I get, the closer it gets, the more I realize that at some point I'm going to... I, I'm not just waiting for Jesus to come, I'm waiting to be with Jesus. So the question is, am, how am I waiting? Am I ready? Jesus tells this parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in their flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, uh, there will not be enough for us, and you too go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. It's kind of a frightening passage, right? Because these are people that are kind of, they're wanting, they're anticipating, that there's some level of interest in the kingdom. See, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And to be ready, we must be full of the Spirit. You're not going to make it any other way. I tell you, I see, the, I, see the, I, I see the challenges that our kids face and our adults face. And I'm here to tell you that, that we're not going to make it unless we're just full of Him. Too much persecution, too much trials, too much distractions, too many things calling for us on the outside. So how do we get full of the Holy Spirit? We can be full of the Holy Spirit when we empty ourselves up and allow God to fill us. And so the question today is, are you empty? (laughs) Have you given it all to him? Have you let go? Have you said, God, I I acknowledge right now that without you, I'm not going to make it. All heads bowed, all eyes closed. Just now, nine thirty. Uh, our, our altars are always available, and may, maybe you just want to come up and make sure that everything's right between you and God. Um, I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm not going to try to convince you. But if the Spirit's speaking to you, I'd, I'd recommend that you just come up and talk to Him. If you want somebody to pray with you, grab, grab somebody. Uh, motion, raise your hand. Yell, uh, tap Pastor Bob. And we'll get somebody up here praying with you. But But I invite you now for these next few moments just to um, consider, is everything given to God? Are you ready?